But if you would take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 6. The first five chapters of the book of Romans has dealt with man's greatest need and declares one righteous through faith by grace. And that produces peace with God. That, that's our greatest need that we have when we're born into this world. We need to have something to reconcile us with the Creator. Uh, we prayed, uh, we read that along with Tim this morning as we were uh, having our, sharing in a confessionary prayer. That idea of reconciliation, peace with God is, is, is vital. If you, if you die, if you, if you end your life in this world without peace with God, you're going to spend forever and ever in a punishment that you can't fathom. A separation from God that you can't conceive. Uh, and that is our greatest need. But yet, the first five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has dealt with that. He has told us the reason why we need peace with God. And he has told us how we obtain peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through any other means, not through any works of religion, not through any self-help uh, approaches, not through reading any particular books or going through a, uh, some sort of a program, but we have it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, see it keeps getting better and better, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. A hope that as Courtney was leading us in a prayer of supplication, a hope that we desperately need to make it through each day. We need this hope. But what Paul describes there in the first four verses of chapter 5 sounds a little bit like the process of sanctification. Suffering, endurance, character building, hope. Begin by asking a question, are those the things that you rejoice in today? For he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that our sufferings is going to produce character, and our character is going to produce endurance, and our, I'm sorry, endurance produces character, and our character produces hope. Were you paying attention that when we were singing, mine are tears of times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Amen. So we tell our soul, come now soul, rejoice. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone. And hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. That is sanctification. Sanctification is just a big theological word that literally just means to be set apart. It's where we get our idea of holiness from. And it's a holiness, it's a being set apart by God that's based on objective reality. It's not subjective emotion. It's not how do you feel today. Or tomorrow. 
or next month. But it's fixed on something sure. It's not a matter of willpower that if I just will myself through this, as if I was some football team, and obviously someone didn't get the memo because even though both locker rooms prepare for a game the same way by saying, you just got to believe that you can win and you can win, somebody's going to lose. But when it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to our growth in Jesus Christ, we can be sure, but it's not because of what we will to happen. It's not a matter of positive thinking. There will be a host of people on TV, not only just today, but all throughout the week, that people will give their attention to, that all they're being told is that you don't really have a sin problem, you just need to overcome your, your uh, lack of self-esteem. You need to feel important, you need to have something more important, and you need to start thinking positively and things will start happening different for you. That's a lie. That's not how we are sanctified. We're not sanctified through religious rituals. It doesn't matter how many times you attend this church, go through every prayer that we pray, put something in the offering plate, attend Christian growth group, or even fellowship with other believers and sing the songs as if you really mean them. That is not going to sanctify you. It's not through the ritual of doing those things in and of, those, in and of itself. It's not a recovery program. There are a lot of people who have overcome the issues of their life. There are addictions that have seemingly been cured in someone's life simply because they went through a 12-step program. But that's not sanctification. Being set apart by God, being sanctified, can be looked at in three different parts. And I think you have those on your sheet. First of all, there's an aspect of sanctification in which we are set apart from the penalty of sin. That is something that has happened in your past, if you're a believer today, or something that will, as you go forward, once you believe, will be something that has happened. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells the church there, But we ought not always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's something that God does. He sets you apart from the penalty of your sinfulness. He tells the church at Corinth in chapter 6 in his first letter, Do you not know that the, unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart from your sinfulness and the penalty of that. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's one aspect of sanctification that deals with my, how I relate to the penalty of my sinfulness. I'm set apart from that. I no longer have to worry about the, the penalty of God's sin because I've been set apart. I've been sanctified. There's also a sense in which sanctification is for the future. It's a future hope. I'm set apart from not only the penalty of sin in my past, but I'm also set, I will one day be set apart from the presence of sin forever. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has to do with when Jesus Christ comes back, at that point I will be separated from the presence of sin. Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Paul here in this, in describing of what a husband should do in relation to his wife, says Christ has not only sanctified you through the washing of water from your sinfulness, but one day he's going to present you blameless and holy without blemish. And in Revelation chapter 21, we get a really good picture of this where John, in revealing what Christ has revealed to him, they will bring into it, speaking about that new Jerusalem, heaven, and where this, I'm sorry, in the honor, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's a description of what we have ahead of us. So sanctification involves the idea that I've been set apart from my sin, from the penalty of that sin in Christ, as I'm justified by faith, according to his grace. There's coming a day in which I'll be set apart from the presence of sin. But that's not today. Look at the back of your worship guide. As Courtney said, look at, look, check the internet for the news. Look outside, go to work, look at your neighbors, look in your own home, look in the mirror. You'll see we're not set apart from the presence of sin yet. So, but there is a sanctification that deals with now. And that's what Romans chapter 6 invites us to understand. For there is a sense in which we are set apart from the power of of sin, set apart from the penalty of sin, set apart from the presence of sin in the future. But right now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if I'm justified by faith, I've been set apart from the power of sin. Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul says, "Now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It's a process. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. In other words, sanctification as we see it lived out in our lives is a process. We are progressively becoming more and more like Christ as God works in us through the spirit. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God working in us, this work of being set apart from the power of sin. He is working, but we are working out our salvation. We're not, we're not saving ourselves. Paul's just simply saying, we're working out what God has began, and we are working with God as God gives us the power and God is going to complete what he started. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a little bit more insight. For the moment of discipline, and we have to understand that discipline is not just a correction from punishment, but it's all different types of teaching. But for a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sanctification is a process of being trained Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
So this work of sanctification that the Lord is working in us and we are cooperating with as we work out our own salvation is a, is, is a pursuit of holiness that without that holiness, we won't see the Lord. And that's a pretty strong indictment. You say, but I'm a believer. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? You'll be sanctified. <laughs> but I don't feel like I'm being sanctified. Again, it's not based on your emotion. Well, I don't have the power to do it. You're right, because it's God working in you to do His work and His pleasure. But this is something that we have to come to grips with as, as believers in Jesus Christ. That we have not just simply been delivered from the penalty of our sin, which we praise the Lord for, right? Because the wrath of God no longer rests on us. And thankfully, we've got a day coming in which there will be no more problems. There will be no more tears. There will be no more heartache. But what about today? What is God working today? One theologian put it this way, indeed, when it, in relation to sanctification, indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior. The more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater his, the intensity of his love for God more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious he will be of the gravity of the sin that remains and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. That's a big theological description of what sanctification is like. In other words, the more you grow to love God and love His Word and to love His ways, the more you'll be aware of the sin that stays within you and the more you'll start detesting that sin. The more you want to get rid of that sin. That's what sanctification looks like. If you find yourself here this morning and you can't remember the last time that you really considered how hateful and how wicked and how destructive sin is, then perhaps you will give your attention to the Word of God today. Because today we're going to look at, at least in an introductory way, new life. A new life that you may not have understood when you first placed your trust in Jesus Christ. A new life that you may not have experienced very much of since you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. But a new life, nevertheless, that you must embrace and experience if you're truly a child of God. There's no option here. There's no, I think I'll just make a decision so I don't have to go to hell and, well, if I get really serious about it one day after I've had all my fun, then I'll start getting serious about it. No! There's no option. For some of you, you may have participated in the uh, the event of 2019. That is, get yourself a new dog year. Um, we participated in that uh, activity. If you haven't, then there's still time. You've got four more months. Uh, and so you might be able to get a Labor Day special today. Uh, sorry, Courtney, I didn't mean to bring that up. Yeah, Courtney, that's, <laughs> Coleman listens really well, I know. Um, 
If he hasn't heard anything else from what I've said, he heard that. Hey, Mark said that you can get a dog or a cat or any other animal. But we did that and we didn't realize just what joy we would experience when we have obtained our last dog. Uh, she was a puppy about eight weeks old and has more energy than everybody in this room combined. Uh, I actually made the mistake last Sunday during Christian Growth Group of trying to make an analogy, because I don't have any kids, uh, of saying that you know uh, the closest I can get to is trying to get my dog to be obedient. And I was told that it was actually easier to get your dog to be obedient than it is to get your children to be obedient sometimes. But besides, uh, that's getting way off track. So we thought, because we knew that when we obtained the dog, uh, that the person we got it from said that it had not been fixed, and you know what I mean by that, uh, and it needed to be, and we thought that, well, when we do that, then surely this procedure will bring this animal into an instant state of adulthood to which it no longer acts like a puppy and will not jump and chew and, and rip, snort, and, you know, create all kinds of chaos in our backyard, which some of you aren't smart enough to have your dog in the backyard, but at least we, I can remind you of the reason why you don't have a dog in the house. But that's another story, too. But we thought that somehow this, this might be the cure. So I took the, we took the dog Wednesday morning. Was it Wednesday? Thursday, one day this past week. And um, I had so much hope in my heart. <laughs> But I've seen my dog chew the last cushion on our patio furniture or seen her dig the last hole in our backyard or uh, the last time it jumps up on me when I come out of the back door and as I continue to walk around the backyard. And I go Thursday to go pick the dog up and I'm driving my pickup truck and you know if you know my pickup truck it's old it has no air conditioning so the windows were rolled down and so I, I, I've got Katie and she's a little droggy coming out of the you know and I've got a leash on her and I pick her up and I put her in the seat of the car or on the sorry the truck and I close the door behind her and, and proceed to walk around the front of the truck to take her home well before I can close the door good and turn around she's jumped out of the window of the truck and I'm thinking well, y'all didn't do something right here because she's still got the energy. In other words, and you know this rest of the story, to this morning when I went out to feed her, she's still jumping up and I'm thinking, uh, this is not working out very well. So if anybody needs a beautiful German Shepherd puppy, Amy will not let me get rid of her, so don't worry. Now, that sounds funny to you because you're not experiencing it unless you've got the new puppy inside your house. But unfortunately, that's somewhat the way we think about sanctification. We somehow think a procedure or another list of rules and do's and don'ts or maybe some sort of ritual or maybe a change of environment will produce a mature Christian. And some of us have lived long enough trying that to know that's not true. And you may be here this morning frustrated looking back over your Christian existence and thinking I sound a lot like your little German Shepherd puppy. And I sound very frustrated and I'm very hopeless sometimes. May the Lord help us as we study his word today. Follow along as I read from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? And again, Paul is in re reference to chapter 5 
in which he has just explained to us that the grace of God continues to abound so much that sin can never catch up. We can sin and sin and sin, but God's grace is more and more and more. So, what shall we say to that? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The SV is so weak here. <laughs> By no means. But what he really means is absolutely not. That woke some of you up. The rest of you will get the next time I do that. But no, Paul says absolutely not. By no means, certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What do you mean should we continue in sin? Think of that. Don't you know? You see, our sanctification is reliant upon objective reality. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on how you act. It's not based on how much self-control you can muster in the flesh. Paul begins with this question, and perhaps he's concerned with those who are truly antinomian, which just simply means people who don't like laws and rules and regulations. And they've been waiting for somebody to tell them that it doesn't matter what you do. God's grace is enough. And perhaps there are some in Paul's day that were looking for a license just to keep on sinning, knowing that, you know what, I got my ticket to heaven. Doesn't matter what I do anymore. Or maybe it was truly those who were concerned that they held holiness and, and position before God so important in their life that they knew that they had to go through every jot and tittle of the law and they had to fulfill it themselves and even add on to some to make sure that they looked really good and make sure that their religion was complete and didn't lack in anything so that they were truly trying to serve God in their ignorance and their self-righteousness. And when Paul says this, it just collapses their whole house of cards. Either way, Paul's addressing a serious matter. That the abundance of grace that it will always be more than our sin is not a substitute for holiness or righteousness or being sanctified. He says... Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Died to sin, by the way, is not something that we do. Just in case you're wondering. Any more than we are the ones who save ourselves. But when we, by the grace of God, through our faith, follow after Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins and trusting in his completed work on the cross as a sufficient, satisfactory substitute for our sin. 
We're dead. Well, Mark, it doesn't feel like it. Again, it's not about how you feel. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you died to sin. And if you died to sin, how can you live in it? Now let's be careful. This, this is where Romans chapter 6 will really cause us to frustrate ourselves. How can we continue to live in it? Mark, you don't know my life. Mark, you apparently haven't read Romans chapter 7. Mark, you apparently haven't looked at a lot of things in the world. Living in sin, that's, that, that's something that I don't do anymore? Right. Living in sin, to go on sinning, is impossible for the Christian. Now, we're not talking about perfectionism here. We're not talking about instantly, you don't make any mistakes because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We have to keep on reading to come to an understanding of what Paul is not saying. But too many people stop right there and they think, that you know what, I'm a believer, therefore I'm perfect. Well, I'm not perfect, so therefore I'm not a believer. Either way, you're messed up. But what Paul is saying, that if we have died to sin, which is not something that we do, we can't make ourselves die to sin. That's something that happens by the miraculous grace of God, that when we become a believer in Jesus Christ, by His grace, we've died to sin. If that's the case, we can't keep on living in sin. That means if I was to go back to this passage of Scripture that Paul was talking about what we used to be, that means there are no adulterous Christians. There are no thieving Christians. There are no lying Christians. Some of you are looking at me like, wait a minute, Mark, you're going way off track here. But no, hear me out. There are no complaining Christians. There are no dishonoring my parent Christians. There are no gay Christians. There are no, no, there are no stealing from the government Christians. There are no self-righteous, I'm sitting in the pew making you impressed with me, Christians. Because when we are in Christ, just as we have been reading through our responsive readings and, and been preparing for the confessionary prayer, we're new. Mark, I don't know what your trip to church was like, but you don't know what mine was like, and I was sinning. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether you can sin or not. Again, we'll get there, maybe, eventually, in two or three sermons. At this pace. But if we died to sin, how can we still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? Now again, as a Baptist, we have to make it really sure that we take advantage of talking about any time baptism comes up in the Bible. Now this is not talking about the ordinance of baptism per se, in which this is some type of instruction for it. That's found elsewhere. But this is using the same picture that we use when we baptize a believer through immersion. Paul is using that same act of identification, one that he uses with the children of Israel when he talks about they were baptized into Moses because they identified with him, they associated with him. The same way we're baptized into his death, 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So let me ask you something. If you believe that as a Christian, as a believer, you have identified with his death, Dying, as it were, on the cross with him, not because you were paying for your own sins, but because you're identifying with his death on the cross to save you from your sins. How can you any less believe that just as he was raised victoriously from the grave, that you haven't been given a new nature? You can now walk in newness of life. That's power over over sin. We're not yet raised from the dead, but this picture is in the same way as Christ was raised from the glory, by the glory of the Father. We can walk in newness of life. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're not in heaven with Christ yet, but we are hidden with him. As we live on this earth, we're with Him. The same power that raised Him from the dead in which He ascended with a glorified body to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's who we identify with. That's the power within us. We're baptized into His death. This is a reality that we must know. Verses 6 and 7. We, all, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Just like as we learned from chapter 5, death reigned from Adam to Moses, but the gracious work of Christ justified. He set free those he saved. We're no longer slaves to sin if our old self was crucified with Christ. We must know this. Lord willing, in the next message, as we continue talking about a new life, we'll talk more about this picture of being a slave to sin and no longer being a slave to sin in Christ. But what Paul is saying here is what he said similarly to the Galatians in chapter 2, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But because he did die for a purpose, the life I live is no longer mine. I was crucified with him. Now you might be completely confused by this point, if you're not familiar with this pastor, thinking, okay, <laughs> all right, so I'm a sinner. God justifies me not because of what I work. You know, Abraham proved that. It wasn't because of Abraham's works, but it was because of the grace of God that I'm saved by faith. And now you're telling me that there needs to be some holiness in my life, but I can't do that because I've died with Christ. Yet I know in my life that before... You even said the next word, I'm sinning in my mind, or I've sinned in my body today, or I've sinned over the past week. There's sin. 
I don't feel like I've been crucified. I don't feel like the old man has been crucified with him. We'll keep going. Another thing that we must know is Christ will never die again. Now, if we have died with Christ in verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Again, back in chapter 5, Paul talks about because one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, and sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we've died with Christ, who can't die anymore, and death has no dominion over him, He's not living a life to God. No, it doesn't mean that God, uh, Jesus Christ wasn't living a life to God to begin with. Just go through the book of John as we we're doing through uh, the equip hour on Sunday afternoons. We know very well that Jesus kept telling people, I'm not doing my own will, I'm doing the will of the Father. I'm not doing my own work, I'm just doing the works that the Father are doing. I'm not saying my own words, I'm just saying what the Father's already said. So it's not that Jesus was living apart from God to begin with, but now as he has fulfilled in a complete obedience, what God the Father had given him to do to save us from our sins, he's now living unto God. He's not dead anymore. He died on the cross, but the power of God raised him from the dead. So he's living to God. And in that same way, Christ, because Christ will never die again and we've been crucified with him, that power that was reigning through sin, death, no longer has a hold on us. Are we going to die? Yes, we will. This old fleshly body will die. But the new man, the new woman inside of you because of what Jesus Christ has done for you will never die. It is living unto God. And because we have been crucified with Christ, as Paul said again in Galatians chapter 2, the life I live is no longer my own. The life I live is by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Three things that Paul says that we need to know, which makes it very clear that Paul and the teachings of the gospel were, were um, throughout the known world at that time. For him to, don't you know? Don't you know? When it came to their identification with Jesus Christ. But as believers, we need to understand and know that we're baptized into Christ's death. We need to know that our old self was crucified with him. And we need to know that Christ will never die again. That's the objective truth that our sanctification must be built upon. So what is that we ought to do regardless of the circumstances, regardless of conditioning, regardless of the flaws in our life, regardless of our personality? Because isn't that what we usually do? We just fall back, well, the reason why I did that is because that's just who I am. The reason why I fell into that sin is because I'm just, I have a weakness in this area. The reason why I reacted that way is because this is just my nature. The reason why I pursued that is because that's just what my, yeah, that's just what my lust are after. That's what we settle for. Paul says you should certainly not be living that way. Because how can somebody who's died to sin live in it? That's not who we are. That may be what we do. But that is not who we are. So what is it we ought to do regardless of these things? Well, in verse 11 he says, So you must also consider yourselves, or you should reckon yourselves, 
dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If there's any book that you read or any speaker that you listen to or anything that you give yourself attention towards in an effort to defeat sin in your life that does not start and sustain and end with a reckoning that you are dead to sin and alive to God is going to leave you very frustrated. So many churches are guilty of having someone come forward after a service and, and genuinely and sincerely pray to God saying, God, I've sinned. I've, 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 I've disappointed you. I've, I've, I've failed again. I've faltered again. And then someone will put their arm around them and say, okay, well, this is what you need to do. Without first saying, this is what you need to understand. This is what you need to reckon. This is what you need to count on. This is what you need to calculate. This is when you're working the books over, this is what you need to come out as on the balance sheet. This is what you need to understand. You need to reckon that you are dead to sin. You're alive to God. We can't expect to simply provide exhortation to live a holy life without providing adequate means to obtain it. Mere rules won't cut it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you going to do this any other way than by God, but God working in you? One commentator said, What has been established, namely that believers are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ, must become the abiding conviction in their hearts and minds, the takeoff point for all their thinking, planning, rejoicing, speaking, doing. They must constantly bear in mind that they are no longer what they used to be. We've got so many people that are confused and deceived into thinking that I'm still a fill-in-the-blank Christian. We're dead to sin. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now you may be convicted of the fact that, you know what, I really don't consider myself that being a big of a problem. I just made a decision one day. I haven't really thought about it much since then. I would take a leap of faith to say that you're deceived. Because if you are a believer in this world, this fallen world, with fallen people all around you, and a person who resides in a, in a dirty, dying, decaying, fleshly body, you're deceived if you don't see the egregious nature of sin. But if you're a believer today and you think that somehow that sin still identifies who you are, please hear the Word of God. If you've been baptized with Christ, if you've been crucified with Him, you are dead to sin. It doesn't mean that you won't fall. It doesn't mean that you won't trip. It doesn't mean that you won't still sin. But that is not who you are. But if you are a sinner today, I beg of you, 
As much as God will open your ears and open your eyes to hear and to see, you need peace with God. Paul goes on to say, and I'll say this quickly because we'll be looking on into this, Lord willing, the next message. It's really important that not only we reckon ourselves dead to sin, but Paul says, do not let sin reign. Let not sin, verse 12, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you notice the relationship here? It's as if sin is on the outside now. And it is. You're no longer in sin. But the sin is still there on the outside. And it continues to try to reign. It tries to make you obey its passions. Now you see, this instruction here is evidence of the fact that we're still potentially incapable of sinning. Or else there wouldn't be an instruction to not let it reign in your life. There wouldn't be instruction to tell you what to do. If it was just natural, we're already perfect, then just sit back, watch it. You're perfect. You're never going to sin anymore. That's not the case. Paul says you're dead to sin, but don't let it try to creep back into your life as if you were alive to it again. You're alive in God. In two different words of instruction of how to do this, do not present your members of sin as instruments for unrighteousness is one, that's the negative, and then the positive, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought through death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I'm just going to make one comment here. In both of these situations, the word instrument that's found in verse 13, in both the negative, don't uh, present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, or even in, at the end, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Every other time in the New Testament, the translators have translated that word weapon. A weapon is an instrument, but for some reason, most translations will translate it here in Romans chapter 6 as just instruments. So that perhaps we can get a better understanding that every instrument or every part of our body, each member of our body, whether it be our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, whatever, our brain, our hearts, our passions, whatever, as instruments... But I think we do ourselves a much better service if we are consistent with the way this word is translated. Not that words can't be translated different ways in different contexts, but I think it helps us out a whole lot when we understand that this word can be, and I think should be, translated. Don't present the weapons for unrighteousness. But present your weapons for righteousness' sake. In other words, we have to understand this. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, we are in a spiritual war. We have got to be fighting. We don't present our weapons as, as instruments of unrighteousness. As if we were to use our liberty to satisfy the lust of the flesh. Or to try to correct somebody. Or to try to do the right thing in our own wisdom and our own ability. But then we're going to present our weapons as weapons for righteousness sake. In this combat in sin and in this work of sanctification. For sin, verse 14, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
Notice that Paul does not present potential. He he presents a declaration. Sin will what? Have no dominion over you. You say, but Mark, I feel defeated. (laughs) I'm so weak. I'm so battered. I'm so war-torn. I am so overwhelmed. You just don't know. You don't know the things in my past. You don't know the things that still haunt me. You don't know the people that are still in my life that are affecting me a certain way. You just don't understand the circumstances that I'm living in. You just don't know how hard this is. And for you to say that that sin will not reign over me, you just don't understand me. And I will quickly tell you, I do not. I can relate to you. I don't understand you, but you know who does? You know who does the one that we're baptized into in his death? The one who is on a cross? He understands everything about you and then some. And he says that sin will not reign over you. It won't. Because we're not living according to the law. That shows us that we're sinners. That shows us that we deserve to die. But we live under what? We're under grace. It seems kind of weird because we think of if, it's, if we're under grace, that means it's over suppressing us. No, grace encompasses us. And that's what I'd like for Richard and for Leanna and Heather if they would come at this time. Brother Tim printed these words for you a couple of weeks ago. Today we're going to sing it again. Because I want you to be reminded that as you walk out of this sanctuary as a believer you're no longer in sin it will not reign over you because we're under grace and God's working a completed work through us in Jesus Christ as we still falter and as we fail but we are under grace. If you're here this morning and you are in sin, you're still an enemy of God, there's hope for you because Jesus Christ, even yet while we were yet sinners, died for us. He took upon Himself sin so that just as through one man sin entered and death through that sin, that through one man we all might have life. If you would just simply repent, turn from your sin, realize that there's absolutely nothing that's pleasing, satisfying, fulfilling enough about your sin that you want to hang on to it, that you want to reject it, you want to turn your face on it, and that you want to place your trust in Jesus Christ for life. He'll save you today.